Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian. My general perspective on 2008 was that we dodged a bullet. The world did not fall apart. But I think that bullet is still whizzing around the planet. We are heavily indebted, and in fact, we are more indebted than we've ever been before, and that includes 2008, and that's on a personal, corporate, and sovereign level. Welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. Lionel Shriver is the best-selling author of 12 novels, including the Orange Prize-winning We Need to Talk About Kevin, later adapted as a film by Lynn Ramsey. Her new novel, The Mandibles, A Family 2029-2047, to is a dark, witty and frightening dystopia about a nation in decline, set during a fiscal crisis in near-future America. At its centre are three generations of a once-wealthy family which must first contend with the loss of its fortune and then learn how to survive as America's sovereign debt soars and the economy spirals into dysfunction. The protagonist of this book There does come a point when his family doesn't have anything for dinner. There just isn't anything. It's not that, you know, there are these dent tins in the back of the cupboard that you can't think of anything very creative to do with. No, there actually isn't any food in the kitchen. And uh, he goes out and he threatens a younger boy into sacrificing the boy's own groceries. It's obviously for his family. It's a small scene. It doesn't involve a gun. It is an act of small bullying out of self-interest, out of desperation. And there's something shocking about that scene. And he, he knows he has crossed a line. Stephanie Merritt talked to Shriver at a Guardian Live event She began by asking if, when Shriver began writing, she saw the mandibles fitting into the tradition of the dystopian novel. Well, I'm obviously writing in the tradition of the dystopian novel, and I have many distinguished predecessors, and it took us a certain nerve and leap of faith on my part to experiment with that form, because it's actually become quite sophisticated. But I thought it would be interesting to do a super near future book and I wanted to try to distinguish my dystopian novels in a couple of ways. First off, in scale, and that is I didn't want zombies running the streets and, you know, flying cars and and telepathy. (laughs) Though it sounds fun. (laughs) I'd read that. Um, I wanted to advance the future in a credible way. I didn't want to focus on the technical, as much science fiction does. I'm just not that interested in that side of things. So I wanted to make it very realistic so that it was accessible to you and you could picture yourselves being in that situation. The other thing that I tried to keep to hew to, to distinguish this book from so many other dystopian novels, is that I wanted it very specifically to be a, an economic dystopia. What goes wrong has to do with money. 
And I don't know of a, a lot of similar books. There have been a few, but not a lot. And that was inevitably uh, partially in inspired by what happened to us in 2008. But my general perspective on 2008 was that we dodged a bullet. The world did not fall apart. But I think that bullet is still whizzing around the planet. And very specifically, uh, I'm concerned about the fact that we are heavily indebted, and in fact we are more indebted than we've ever been before, and that includes 2008, and that's on a personal, corporate, and sovereign level. So this book is, among other things, an exploration of debt. The U.S. ends up defaulting on its national debt. And I, I think it's worth asking yourself, in this country, given how hard it is for George Osborne, to even reduce the rate at which the deficit grows, at what point is George or his predecessor ever going to start paying down the principal? If they're not going to pay down the principal, is that money real? Well, I was curious to know where that this began, because uh, you wrote a piece for The Guardian back in 2013 about the pitiful interest rate that was coming back on your on your savings, and the headline uh, on that was spend, 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 because your savings aren't worth a damn. And <laughs> some of the arguments... I hope you followed my advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but some of the arguments in that piece have found their way into, into the novel, and some of the characters you know, express the same concerns. And, uh, and obviously that is what happens to this family, which, you know, I, in a minute I'll ask you to give us a little bit more background about what happens to the family in the novel uh, around the, the piece that you're going to read. Was that piece the genesis of this novel, or was it, did it come out of research that you were doing? Had the idea been there for a while to work on this particular economic meltdown theory? I guess it had been gestating for a while because I was raised Presbyterian, and I may have turned my back on most of it, all the um, Virgin Mary stuff, <laughs> but uh, something got through, and I believe that when you borrow money, you should pay it back. I know that's an old-fashioned view, but it bothers me that we are now organizing the economy in order to reward people who are in over their heads, who have borrowed money that they probably won't pay back, and we punish people who live within their means and save for the future. And it just, it doesn't seem fair. And then I come back on myself and I say, but, you know, economics has nothing to do with fairness. Fairness, in, in, when you're dealing with a systemic imbalance, is a luxury but it still bugs me. So that's, that's a lot of where that comes from, is that just that sense of injustice. Mm. Well, and one of your characters, who is in fact an economist, says at one point that economics is more like a religion than a, a science. But maybe that's the substitute for the, for the lost faith of childhood. Well, he says that in, in relation to currency in particular, that, um, and this is something that I'd never really thought about before, starting to research this book, that currency is a belief system. And the reason that we use money and uh, that we, we will actually sacrifice real things. I mean, I'll, I'll give you my book, 
and you just give me some paper. That involves an act of faith on my part that that paper is worth something and I can get real things with it. An entire population, if not the whole world, with a truly functional currency has to believe in that currency in order for it to be functional. And I thought that was, that was really interesting. And to realize how easily that, that faith can be shattered. And when that faith is shattered, it is truly horrific. I mean, I did some reading about Germany in the early 1920s, and it just breaks your heart. And that was the ultimate example of people who had saved and, and scrimped and lived within my, their means being completely devastated. What were the challenges? Because it's a dystopian novel. It's a novel in which there is a terrible crisis, but the crisis isn't a war. It's to do with numbers on screens and, as you say, bits of paper that suddenly are not worth what we thought they were worth. But the consequences of that are as real and as terrifying as if there had been a, a physical attack on America, the way that civilization starts to break down. What, for you, were the challenges in making that kind of speculative fiction out of something as theoretical and, dare I say it, perceived as dull mm. as, as economic theory? It's not, at first glance, the most exciting, adventurous theme that you, uh, you could pick for a story. Part of it was that once I started reading about this stuff, I found it so exciting that I wanted to impart what I'd learned to my readership. I didn't find it dull. I have always been bored shitless with economics and, you know, unemployment rates and inflation rates. And it just, when I was growing up, I considered myself interested in the arts and I completely ignored the business page. So it was a, it was real discovery for me to find this stuff interesting. And therefore, that sense of discovery, I think, helps to energize the book. And um, one of the nicest things my agent said when she read the, uh, the first draft I submitted was, you know, the economics are very clear. It seems like a drab little compliment, but it was hugely important to me that they were clear and they were accessible. So I don't actually find this stuff dull, and I think when the author is interested, it's possible to convey some of that excitement to the text, to the characters, and therefore to the readership. I mean, th the challenge of the book also was to tell two different stories at the same time, because on the one hand, I'm telling a future history, classic future history story. And so the, um, the dollar suddenly plummets on the currency market. Its value has been eroded for a, a while now. And there's another international currency lined up to take its place on the international markets and, and the commodities markets. And the, the Russians and the Chinese have apparently been ready for this for a while. And in retaliation, the president, the first Latino president of the U.S., defaults on the national debt because a lot of national, the national debt is held by foreigners. He says, okay, we're not going to pay you back. And uh, he also forbids the Americans from taking more than $100 out, outside of the country. And he calls in all the gold reserves. 
and he says, if you have any gold, it's now the property of the federal government. Now that seems incredible, and I actually had the Financial Times reviewer call into question whether or not this would ever happen. Well, you know what? It has happened. This is another thing I found out. I couldn't believe it. Did you know that Franklin Delano Roosevelt commandeered all the gold in the United States in 1932, I think it was? Have you ever heard of that? It's staggering. And the legislation that makes it possible for the president to do this is still on the books. So that could happen any time. Once the, the U.S. defaults on its debt, it can't borrow any more money because you don't loan people money who don't pay it back. So suddenly they've got all these bills to pay with very high entitlements and an aging population, high health care and pension and all that. And so they have to keep printing money to pay the government's bills and inflation goes through the roof. That is the future history story. But of course, the most important story to tell was the story of what it was like on the ground while this was happening. And so those are the mandibles, all right? So it's four generations of the same family and they were originally uh, pretty prosperous. They weren't all prospering, uh, but there was a lot of money in the pipeline. The 97-year-old patriarch uh, had a, in, himself inherited a fortune and if he would just hurry up and die already, everybody would be pretty rich. But almost overnight, that fortune vanishes. So a certain amount of the book is about how different characters feel about this different future. But meanwhile, you know, escalating unemployment, some characters lose their jobs, they lose their houses. Again, I tried to keep control of that scale and didn't want it to go completely, you know, running the streets, everyone's murdering each other. But little by little, certain things begin to break down. So it was trying to tell those two stories at the same time was the biggest challenge of the book. What I found very frightening in the early part of the novel is the way that for the middle classes, the trappings of middle class lifestyle, and in many cases even middle class professions, very quickly become expendable when survival becomes the most important thing in, in the family's life. So things like writing, music, cookery, mm. design, the idea of going to college to study design very mm. quickly goes from being something that is, they can have a yeah, comic per conversation Yeah, a perfectly plausible about. and reasonable thing you want to do with your wife suddenly becomes stupid. Yeah, and, and impossible. And. Um, as you wrote the book, did you find yourself becoming more frightened by the world you were creating? Did it begin to seem more and more plausible as you, as you went deeper into it? I wouldn't say that I became actively frightened. When you want to be frightening, you're not necessarily frightened if you follow me. It makes me happy if I'm being successfully frightening. <laughs> I'm sometimes asked, uh, for example, whether I found writing we need to talk about Kevin terribly depressing and the honest answer is no. As long as the book was working and I was depressing you, I was having a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I mean, I did, it didn't scare me. The hard part was, again, this, this business of controlling the scale because, yes, I was writing about a country that was falling apart, but, you know, you, it's not good storytelling to just have it happen overnight. Suddenly, you can't buy anything and 
and everyone is put on their Darwinian wits. So no, that's just not good story. So to begin with, the Lowell's wife, who's still, you know, for that dinner party, really splashing out a fair amount of money for their tuna steak, is exasperated at about the, the rising cost of extra virgin olive oil, because it's imported. That scale of worry and her favorite French white wine has also become rather unaffordable. And this is what they're concerned about to begin with, as we would be, right? I use lots of virgin olive oil. I drink plenty of wine. It would irritate me to find these things on which I depend, on which I believe that my happiness depends. And suddenly they are either too expensive or, or unavailable. So you have to start with that. And little by little, things crumble. And you can't let it get out of control. I watch a lot of movies, too, and I'm always interested. There's a certain kind of comedy, especially anything that comes near farce, that when it goes off, loses its scale. It just becomes all zany. I'm sure you've seen movies. And it no longer makes you laugh. It has accelerated too much and lost control of itself. And this plot had to be very carefully controlled. And therefore, when the characters cross a certain line, it's very meaningful. The protagonist of this book who takes, I call him a, I call him a stealth protagonist. He's only 13 at the beginning. And it takes you a while to figure out that he's eventually going to become your main character. And I think he is, in many ways, the, the moral and intellectual center of the novel. He's um, unusually precocious in relation to economics. But there does come a point when his family doesn't have anything for dinner. There just isn't anything. And, you know, there's a whole explanation of it doesn't, it's not that, you know, there are these dent tins in the back of the cupboard that you can't think of anything very creative to do with. No, there actually isn't any food in the kitchen for dinner. And uh, he goes out and he threatens a younger boy into sacrificing the boy's own groceries. It's obviously for his family. It's a small scene. It doesn't involve a gun. It is an act of small bullying out of self-interest, out of desperation. And there's something shocking about that scene. And it's because of the smallness. And he, he knows he has crossed a line. And, that, and it's a line that gives me chills. Yes, and I, well, I think perhaps what's, what makes it so chilling is the incremental nature of the way life changes and exactly that, that there are moral choices to be made that you know, people have to make that they wouldn't have imagined themselves making perhaps two years earlier. As with many of your previous novels, you've taken this these issues, and, and you're exploring it through the prism of, of a family, of family relationships, and family life, and, and these characters end up under extreme pressure. This, this rather big and kind of spread out family ends up All concentrated in the <laughs> into the same house. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if they, they say the essence of drama is character under pressure, they are under extreme pressure in this small environment, and, and different 
characteristics and, and flaws and, and perhaps traits that good qualities that they didn't know they had come out. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the background to your to your characters and perhaps which of them came first and how they developed in relation to one another. Well, I, I just had to design a family and I, I knew I wanted uh, multi-generations because one of the things that, at least in passing, I'm looking at is the fact that we're living so long and mm. I was interested in that situation where you had a fair bit of money but because the elderly relative who has possession of it doesn't ever die nobody ever gets their hands on it it's very it must be very frustration so so that that the patriarch's son is almost 70 years old when the book begins and still has had not exactly been living hand to mouth but he's living a middle middle class existence there's not they still have to worry about bills and one of the reasons that I chose to use a family that had money in it somewhere is that you have to have money to lose money. It's as simple as that. I wanted them to suffer some devastating blow. So if I'm writing about people who are already impoverished, it's not going to be as dramatic. It's not as interesting. It's a better story this way. I mean, I tried to keep the population of this four generations fairly controlled because uh, when you get too many characters you lose control of the story and the reader gets confused and can't keep up with who's who and and it's too much work for me <laughs> so the the douglas the the patriarch has only two children one of whom doesn't have any children that keeps it simple and this the sister whose name is nolly was my tongue-in-cheek little insertion of Lionel Shriver in 2029 and later in 2047. So one of the reasons I did that, it was, it was fun to take the mickey out of myself. And uh, also I put myself in the book for ideological reasons. That is, the villains in this book are my generation people in my generation because it's a large cohort we're going to have very high health care bills we're going to live for a long time and we expect to not work for a lot of that time and we expect other people to pay for that <laughs> and it is going to be ruinous for the generation coming up behind me so I thought if I was going to demonize my own generation then I should personalize it and make it clear that I'm talking about me, not other people. But she's actually, you've, you've been accused in the past of not writing very likable characters. And Nolly is great. She's one of the most exciting and, and most likable characters in the book. I she's guess, that was an accident. But <laughs> <laughs> I meant for her to be unbearable. <laughs> she's, but well, you have had a bit of fun with her because she's famous for writing this, this one kind of bestseller, which was a bit of a sort of light romance that's offended all of her family. Yes. And uh, she's got a slightly idiosyncratic exercise regime that is always referred to whenever she's um, mentioned in the media or in, in, the, in the press that she, that she has to carry out every day. So you've Yes, it's very annoying. She does her 3,000 jumping jacks or what you would call star jumps and the whole house pounds you know I deliberately cast her as someone who's opinionated and obnoxious and belligerent and tactless wonder where I got that <laughs> <laughs> but actually within this family that's 
it's necessary because everybody else has spent their lives tiptoeing around uh, the patriarch in, in right. the fear of offending him. And, and she comes back and she's, you know, the bluntest character. Well, one of the things I also had fun with, it, it's a, a form of confession because I cite the names of all her books and I use the horrific working titles of my real novels. <laughs> <laughs> so the name of We Need to Talk About Kevin is I Finally Reveal Cradle to Grave. Uh, and at what point did you ditch that? <laughs> Not soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point in, in which, so Nolly has, has been away from America for a long time mm -hmm. and she talks uh, when she comes back about how she's very resistant to the idea of national identity, but when she saw her country in a crisis, mm. she felt compelled to, to return. And this notion of American identity, you have one of the other characters, uh, her niece Florence, also reflects about what it means to be American. And, and she says she didn't think about being American often, though that may have been typically American in itself. Mm -hmm. And I wondered how how much that sense of national identity means to you as an, an American writer who lives largely in the UK now and has done for a while? Well, I would certainly concede that I have been ambivalently American for most of my life. Uh, although it's something that I was born as and there's not much point fighting it. It is a fact of my existence. And you could be born worse places. So, you know, in a lot of ways I lucked out. I have enjoyed opportunities in my life that if, if I had been born in Papua New Guinea, I probably wouldn't have. So I will take what advantages I can get. That's, that's great. I have a lot of regard for the idea of the United States, and I enjoy the fact that the United States has an idea. A lot of countries are collections of people and histories, but they don't necessarily have a notion around which they are conceived. And I, I, I guess the best way I would summarize the way I understand the concept of the United States is that it's a place that you can do what you bloody well want as long as you're not hurting other people. I am sorry to say that that's a, a concept that I think that the modern day U.S. has failed. It is not genuinely a free country and I think that most Western democracies are not free. I think we are constrained up one side and down the other, and one of the ways that we are constrained is that the government considers absolutely everything we earn as its purview. By the end of the novel, of course, we're in 2047, and uh, it was mischaracterized as a police state in, in a review recently. It's not a police state. It's a place where they don't give a damn what you're thinking. They just want your money. I find the financial control by government, very unsettling. But across the board, the U.S. is not a, f a free country. I mean, it's a, the West in general has become very controlling. That's a lot of what the EU referendum is all about. That whole ethos of we know better, we, we know better what to do with your money and we can tell you how to be good. And I'm a very anti-authoritarian character and I rebel against that. So I like the idea of the United States and I wish it hewed more closely in reality to what it is in theory. And I feel mournful about 
the country in my mind that it perhaps used to be and perhaps could be again, though I doubt it, but definitely isn't now and doesn't look as if it's going to be in the near future. So the book is rather mournful and that, that is genuine. I am sorrowful about what has happened to my country. I do not relish the story that I'm telling, even though I, I certainly crack some jokes to keep us both entertained along the way. But it isn't a celebration of the demise of the United States. And I, I am also concerned, which, give, which we have some expression of, in, especially in the, the latter part of the, the book, which is more toward mid-century, about what life is going to be like for our children and our children's children. What kind of pressures are going to be on them? What country is going to take the place of the United States politically if it does fall, it can no longer be the world's policeman? What if nobody steps in and takes the job? It's a very expensive job and a thankless one because usually it doesn't work out very well. But, you know, we've got this situation in Syria and everyone is saying, well, you know, the West hasn't done anything or the United States hasn't done anything. In fact, whenever anything goes wrong, it's like, well, what, where's the United States? What's the president doing about it? If it continues to go on, it's like, well, that's, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not a Trump person. But he does have a point that the rest of the world relies very heavily on the United States to make things go right when things have gone to hell somewhere. I am worried if the U.S. can no longer afford that role and no one else steps in, what kind of a world are we going to be living in? It is perhaps quite difficult, I think, to talk about the idea of a speculative fiction set in the near future when America is beginning to collapse without thinking about the current situation. And, and presumably when you started writing this novel, there was no concept of the, the rise of Trump and that popularity. There's an extraordinary coincidence right. in the book. I don't think it's a spoiler to say it, but in, as America collapses, um, Mexico gains in strength because it buys into the new currency and becomes extremely prosperous. And the Mexicans build a wall along the border to keep American immigrants out. <laughs> And now, this, is, this was conceived completely independently. It was uh, before Trump. <laughs> Trump stole the idea from me. <laughs> How would he figure in a, in a dystopian future? Or, or is the prospect of that even more horrifying than, than the uh, America that you're, that you're portraying here? I honestly think that if you put Trump in a novel, you know, before the last year, it wouldn't work. It would seem too far-fetched and you would be accused of writing farce, and you'd be accused of condescending, being condescending about the American people, and you'd also uh, be criticized as a novelist, why couldn't you come up with a more beguiling demagogue? I mean, this guy is crude, he's a buffoon, he can't string a grammatical sentence together, he's unappealing, you know, I, I can just hear the editorial lunch now. You know, you've got to do something about this guy. There has to be something appealing about him or surely he wouldn't have this constituency. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. I, I am completely baffled and no little embarrassed 
I am not losing sleep yet because I don't think he has a hope in hell of becoming president. But I was concerned when I, when I, I read recently when an excellent uh, Andrew Sullivan essay which pointed out that all very well he seems unelectable now, but what if something happens from left field? What if there's another 9-11 scale tragedy that makes Americans feel very frightened? and attacked, that could really be a big game changer. And it's that circumstance that most worries me. I think that idea of fear is very interesting because that, that comes up in the book as well, that it's, it's much easier to be tolerant when you feel secure. The minute you feel threatened, that's when hostility begins and, and outsiders and the other become a threat to whatever your Well, it's one of the things that the novel examines is the point at which you have to say, okay, I can't afford to be nice anymore. I have to look out for myself mm. and my family. And that's when community bonds and contracts break down. At a certain point in the book, honoring private property goes out the window. That's pretty scary. I just wanted to ask you, before we open it up to questions, um, just to go back to this idea of identity and, and what identity means. Now, you, you've never been one to shy away from controversial questions, and you've recently waded into the debate about gender and gender identity with a, a, a long and extremely convincing essay in Prospect magazine. And I was interested because there's a sort of tangential reference in the novel that in this future where survival becomes paramount, there are all kinds of luxuries that people no longer have money for things like gluten intolerance, mm -hmm. but also um, <laughs> gender dysphoria. If nobody can afford realignment surgery, gender dysphoria diagnoses become pointless. So I wondered how this idea of identity and, and how that relates to the idea of the self, how it affects you know, this novel and this idea, that this, this essay that you've written. And it also reminded me of comments that you made about your previous novel, Big Brother, where there was a lot of debate about in what sense the body represents the self or where the identity is found. Do you want to say a little bit about this, this interest in the, the self and the surface and the way that we're perceived? Well, I, I should clarify that uh, the passage that you're remembering is, was uh, submitting that in the farther future, the diminished United States, there is a whole host of neuroses that people simply can't afford. And they are, in fact, indulgences of prosperity. And I think there is something to that, that we have a host of problems in the West that we cultivate, and that's because we, we can afford them. They are elective problems in some ways. And in societies that are still just trying to feed and clothe and house people, you don't see this as much. And therefore, in my farther future US, there's, the catastrophe has had curative powers. <laughs> um, the essay you're talking about is a piece I did for Prospect, which is talking about gender identity. And I, I have put forward the, at least my experience of being female which is that I, I certainly accept that 
my gender plays a part in my social interactions with other people and I don't fight the fact that I'm perceived as a woman and and I know that that comes with a certain packages of, of, of assumptions and those are assumptions I make about other people uh, in relation to their genders but when it's just me in a room you know thinking I don't feel especially female and I do not believe that my essence as I as I experience it my core self whatever we're going to call it I don't think it has a gender and I, I, I thought that the, the hope of the women's liberation movement when I was younger was that we were in some ways getting beyond gender and we stopped thinking of each other so much in terms of whether we we're male or female and we just would get to be people and we'd stop making all these assumptions about each other based on whether or not what, what kind of genitals we have and I feel that more recently we've been going backwards in that project and uh, young people seem fixated on identifying themselves in a very specific way in relation to gender and the thesis I put together was that that, that business of having a, a, a gender continuum is based on stereotypes and without the stereotypes you don't have a continuum you have to believe that there are qualities that are intrinsically female and male in order to have any sense of what it means to be male and female. And one of the things I, I wrote in the essay, and, and I was not being disingenuous, I said, you know, you hear from transgender people, uh, say a, a, a man, uh, who, 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 someone born a man, but who, who feels female, and I honestly do not know what it means to feel female. I'm a woman, and I don't know what it knows it feels like to feel like a woman. I don't feel like a woman. I feel like myself. I have a sense of presence. I think. I look out. I see. I don't feel female much of the time. I'm only reminded of that when I have to deal with you a lot. <laughs> now, you know, I don't know whether this is advancing a particularly radical notion, but I... I find the gendered self a little depressing mm. and if I had a child of either sex I would encourage them not to explore becoming the other sex or defining themselves somewhere very specific in the middle but to try to get over it and not think about it in those terms I have respect for people having different sexual proclivities and I'm happy for them to do whatever they want but where what the most recent discussion hasn't really focused on sexual practices it's about identity it's about the nature of self and I simply reject at least in accordance with my experience of myself that self is gendered and you, you did talk about a, a similar idea with um, with the idea of Big Brother in a, a, another piece where you were talking about the way that people are perceived purely in terms of their body size and that certain assumptions are made about you if you are very large, if yes, you are very thin. Yes, in fact, I, I did a, a long essay for the Guardian Review on this topic because I think this is another respect in which culturally we seem to be going backwards because I think we need to make it, as much as we may live uh, sometimes happily in our bodies and, and our bodies are capable of giving us great pleasure and and it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting place to live. But I would like to keep at least a fag paper between self and body. And as I age, 
I find I need even more than a fag paper's width. As I age, it starts getting wider and wider. I believe that we are now identifying too much with our bodies and judging other people in accordance with their bodies, how well kept they are, whether they have had the sur plastic surgery that we think they should have had, the, whether they're overweight. You know, that's one of our most uh, judgmental viewpoints. And I, I reject this. And I don't think people are their bodies. I think the, the disability community knows all about it. And, and if you're a perfectly able-bodied person and suddenly you cross the street at the wrong point, you learn that lesson fast, right? Here you are, you're, you're still yourself, and you can't walk anymore. And people look at you completely differently. So I would like to see us be less judgmental about the body. And as much as we may take, try to take care of it, it's a kind of housekeeping. It is like doing the hoovering. And that's a, a lot of the way I think of, of doing my daily exercise. It's not that I'm so damn virtuous. It's like patching the roof. It's just keeping the house in order. Well, on that note, I'm going to open it up to questions to the audience. Thank you very much, Lionel. And um, oh, thank you. Um, yes, this lady over here. It's a fascinating talk. My question's actually going to take you back to where you began. Mm. I was intrigued by you saying uh, what you said about being raised to pay bills on time and observe authority and those kinds of things. Um, because I find myself in the position of being a 61-year-old woman in this country, having always been told I was going to retire at 60, mm. happy to accept 61, 62, 63. It's now 66. I'm very bitter about having put so much money into pensions. Mm. I'm very bitter about not having realized that as I age, it would be harder to get work. Because I always worked, and I was always proud to work. But I just wish I had all that money back. And I was thinking, what you, if I were tongue-in-cheek listening to what you said, all these people who offer me 20, 25 grand on a credit card, I should take 10 of them and disappear, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, Lowell, even though he's an economist and, and you would think he wouldn't think in these terms, there's a point in the book where he's really pissed off him, with himself for not maxing out his credit cards oh, while he still had the chance because they're all canceled because that's what everybody did in the book and therefore the credit card companies just started calling them in. But the people who did it early got the money. I mean, I share your indignation. There's a feeling that if you're in the wrong generation and people a little older than you are, are fine, right? You and I are roughly the same age. And I'm just on the cusp of the people who aren't going to be as well taken care of. I would not be surprised at all if by the time I qualify, my social security, you familiar with that in the United States? It's our yes. private pension, uh, but a government-sponsored private pension. I will not be surprised if it is means-tested. Now, I was promised when I was contributing to it throughout my life that this was my money and I would be able to access it when, when it was time. But I, I am 70% sure 
that that will be withdrawn and, and it will change. And suddenly, if I have too many assets, I don't get my money back. And that's the kind of thing that's happening. And, you know, we're just, again, this is, it doesn't seem fair, but we're dealing with a structural problem. We belong to too large a generation with too small a generation coming up behind us. And the, that whole thing with pensions, I mean, it's not really the case, for example, with uh, Social Security that they have put it in a little box and you can get it later. The people who are going to be paying my Social Security are the workers. They didn't save the money. They're not going to be enough of them to take care of us. And ultimately, of course, I say, I say that our generation, are the, they're the villains in the book, but it's not our fault. We didn't choose to be born when we did. It's Hitler's fault. That's where the, <laughs> that's, we can blame him for everything. I mean, that's the thing. It's the, it's the result of the war. The baby boom was the result of the war. It distorted ordinary reproductive practices. And I'm kind of toward the end of that generation, and, and so are you. We have a serious demographic and therefore economic problem. Do we have another question? Lionel, when you first started writing novels, did you have confidence in your ability and um, how do you have confidence in your writing at the beginning? I guess I just enjoyed it so much, you know, and I still do. I enjoyed the act of storytelling. I liked language. You can call that confidence, but I think I experienced it more just as enthusiasm, right? So I would get excited about a story that seemed to be working and it was conceived in terms that I wanted to tell it and I'd get a character that interested me and so it wasn't like, ha ha, I'm so great. It was more the work itself seduced me. That's the best part of my profession is sitting down and having fun and coming up with what happens next and playing with a sentence and it's fun, it's an activity. And the act of writing a novel is, um, I guess it, it's, it, there's a way in which that there's a gathering confidence, but it has to do with the fact that the story gathers and it gathers a sense of reality. You know, the, you know writers are also readers of their own work, so you're becoming involved in the story as, as a reader you want to know what happens next, you care about the characters in the same way. It's a little bit like medical researchers who use themselves as their first guinea pigs. You know, you're your first guinea pig, and it's fun. So the sensation of confidence is almost irrelevant when you're writing it. In some ways, what, what you need confidence for is this part, you know, the release, giving it out to the world, and reading the really shitty reviews in the Times. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need confidence for. Did it change for you much? Because I know, um, you know you've, you've spoken before that you worked for a long time uh, before you had this great success with We Need to Talk About Kevin, and you'd published a number of books, and it was your seventh, eighth novel? Seventh. Seventh novel, and, and you'd published those without a, a great deal of fanfare, and you'd kept going. Did your sense of confidence in your own writing change after that success or did it not affect the process at all? Were you still going into the books with the, with the same 
I don't think it has infected the, the process. What I'm describing is still w how I experience writing a book, if it's working. The main thing that has happened is that I have more confidence that I have a readership. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's been the most thrilling aspect of the post-Kevin world, if you will, is um, I no longer feel that I'm going to be you know, sitting in my study for a year or two and nobody's going to read it. And I find that a big relief. You know, that, that also comes with a little bit of pressure. Uh, people have expectations. If I fail to produce something or, or if I write something completely rubbish, it's a, more of a public experience of humiliation than it might otherwise be. I, I have lost the ability to fail quietly. But otherwise, the experience of writing the books is pretty much the same, and, and I'm glad of that. Although, if your prophecies prove correct, we are heading towards a world in which nobody pays for books, nobody pays for journalism, mm -hmm. there is no authoritative journalism <laughs> because there's no money for it. So it's a fairly desperate, uh, desperate um, vision for our profession. Is that, was that tongue-in-cheek, or is that something that, that genuinely seems... Well, I mean, as Lowell says, uh, books about the future are about the fears of the present. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I get a little anxious about my profession. It, it does seem to be a time that everybody wants to write novels and nobody wants to read them. Uh, and I also think that the, um, the problem of internet piracy is worse than publishers generally let on. So there's a regular leakage of digital work uh, that's getting out there for free and it's that's a little unsettling and right now it, it doesn't it's not so bad that there is no publishing industry but in in my future it's definitely down the tubes and it's a completely amateur matter of putting your stuff online for free and given what's happened with the music industry it's not inconceivable hmm. sorry there was a, a gentleman in the middle there um, I'm from South Africa so with our neighbor Zimbabwe, we've pretty much seen a live show of the mandibles where we watch the currency decline. And now we're seeing it happen at home as well. I'm curious on two fronts. Did you ever consider what's happened in some of the African states when you made the book? Mm. And how much of the book would you consider prophetic versus how much of it is intended as a warning? I hope it's not prophetic. You know, I don't want this to happen. So yes, it's much more of a warning, and, and that's one of the classic purposes that a dystopic novel plays. I threw in everything I'm worried about in this. It's a real kitchen sink book. It's not just the economics. It's also, you know, I'm worried about our running out of fresh water. I'm worried about escalating population we can't handle. Um, and I'm worried about running out of fish. <laughs> I love fish. We're having sushi after this. Um, <laughs> I didn't specifically refer to the experience of various African states with a runaway inflation, but I have always been fascinated by these stories. So, you know, I, I definitely have followed, for example, the, the fate of Zimbabwe for years, because that was utterly compelling. Uh, and right now I'm fascinated by Venezuela. Venezuela currently has the highest inflation rate in the world. So I read every article I can get my hands on about Venezuela. So I wasn't exactly modeling the book on this, but I have a fair, because I've been fascinated by this subject for quite some time, 
I have a certain amount of material in there to, to refer to. I think it's very frightening. Were you in Africa? I live in South Africa, and I got flown up to Zimbabwe when bread was $19,000 a loaf. And I stayed there for 48 hours, and I flew out. It was $26,000 wow. a loaf. Wow. Wow. I saw some old people walking in the street. I mean, obviously, your pension erodes at an incredible rate. The fear in their faces was unforgettable. Yeah. yeah. Well, th th now I understand where your question comes from. That's almost exactly what happens in the book, and it seems so unbelievable that it's almost comical, the way the prices change by the time you've gone into the supermarket and by the time you've left. They've gone up again. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, in, in the novel, I steer clear of when the inflation rate really gets out of control, partly because I can't compete with reality. You know, some of the stories that have come out of, for example, the the experience of the Germans in the 20s. I can't tell better stories than that. People going to shops with wheelbarrows, wheelbarrows full of cash, or going to a restaurant and insisting on paying the bill before they eat the meal, because by the time they finish, the price will have doubled. It is so bizarre that I couldn't do better. And actually, I wrote up until the point where you were getting close to that. But then I stopped. Do we have another question? Uh, yes, gentleman down here. Um, I've read a number of your books. I've liked them all. Um, am I right in thinking they've all been set in America? And if I am, are you planning to set any in this country? Or have they also been set in this country? My, uh, my third novel is set in Northern Ireland entirely. Actually, my first novel, is a, a part of it, is it takes place in Africa, East Africa. And my fourth novel is almost entirely uh, set in Kenya. And then there's the post-birthday world, which is set mostly in the UK. Th that's a good question, because the balance of the other books are pretty much set in the United States. And it is one of the things that I have to decide when I start a book is where it's set. That decision has been determined most recently by the subject matter. I thought that if I was going to write about obesity, it really belonged in the U.S. If I'm going to write about the U.S. healthcare system, it kind of belongs in the U.S. And if I'm going to write about the collapse of the U.S., it kind of belongs in the U.S. <laughs> so I wouldn't be averse to setting another novel in the UK, though I got my hand slapped a bit in the reviews. The, the readership has been enthusiastic about that book, but the reviewers were snide. So that made me feel a little anxious. And to be honest, the, uh, that was a very British expression. <laughs> the British are much more eager to read about Americans in America than the American readership is to read about Brits in Britain. Americans want to read about themselves and prefer settings close to home. Whereas Britons and basically all the other readerships in the world are much more interested in, in other nationalities. So if I'm going to play to a maximum readership than I said it in, in the United States because then the Americans will read it. 
Now, I will not necessarily refuse to write a, a, a book set in the UK for that reason. It really comes down to what ideas I get and where it seems like that idea would be best explored. Uh, but it is starting to get a little weird because I've been in the UK for almost 30 years and I only go back to the US summers and yet the preponderance of my work is set in a place that I no longer live most of the time. So it's starting to feel a little like off, <laughs> right? And because I follow British politics much more closely than I do American politics. That's the irony of being dragged on Channel 4 and, you know, explain to us about Trump. Well, you're better off asking somebody who lives there, right? <laughs> I think we've got time for one more question uh, before we wrap it up. Do we have a final question? Um, I do a movie review website. When I was watching Kevin, there were so many changes made from the book you wrote and I know to some extent you were involved in that process, but I wondered now, having some distance, how do you feel about the choices they made in that movie and how, how to me, they seem quite different and sometimes dumbed down from the choices you made in the book? I was not involved in that film. So uh, all those choices were Lynn Ramsey's choices. I've been supportive of the film. I think it's uh, a fine effort I don't feel that it, you know, it dumbs down the book. There's, you can't dramatize a whole novel of that size and complexity in a film. There just isn't enough time. Uh, I had a, a few frustrations, you know, I wasn't too sure about all that red stuff. And I, I would have used more dialogue. There's a, a lot of dialogue in the book. I write with a lot of dialogue. And I felt that when her directing skills and excellent casting combined with my dialogue that's when that film really took off and I noticed that that the scenes that they used for the trailer were those scenes right and so for my taste there was a bit too much silent panning and uh, and Tilda looking worried <laughs> so <laughs> I liked it when she opened her mouth uh, but I think as these things go, generally I lucked out, it could have been a, a real piece of crap. And it wasn't, it was a serious film and it got some serious attention. There's probably another film to be made of that book that is not quite so arty and is, is a bit more mainstream because it's got a lot of just standard story in it that was a, a bit underexplored. But I still appreciated that uh, in the scheme of things, I, I don't think it was in, in, in any way, stretch of the imagination a travesty. I don't think it did the book any harm. I think it's a legitimate interpretation of the book. And it brought more readers to the novel. So I've, I've got very little to complain about. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for the questions. Um, and once again, thank you all so much for coming this evening. Please join me in thanking Lionel Shriver. Thanks to Lionel Shriver and Stephanie Merritt. Shriver's The Mandibles is published by HarperCollins. Next week, we welcome Maggie Nelson and Chris Krause. You can find more literary discussion on The Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or via your favourite podcast app. Just spark it up and search for Guardian Books Podcast. 
Till then, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Simon Barnard, see you next week. The New Odyssey is the definitive story of life, death, and the survival on the refugee trail from The Guardian's migration correspondent, Patrick Kingsley. It's a story about who these refugees are, and about the smugglers, coast guards, volunteers, and politicians who help them, or look the other way. Buy your copy from The Guardian Bookshop today for just £9.99 and save over 30% on the recommended retail price. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com audio.